You are listening to the iAfrican Weekly Podcast, Episode 10. First broadcast on 30 June 2016. The iAfrican Weekly is brought to you in association with Remix Mini, the world's first true Android PC. Run all your Android apps on a palm-sized desktop that costs only 1,499 South African rands. Head over to bit.ly forward slash Remix Essay. This week I chat to Mr. Tommy Davis, joining us all the way from London, who has made a name for himself as a businessman and angel investor. I'm what we call a portfolio investor, so I have a portfolio of tech entrepreneurs that I, I support as um, an angel investor. I also catch up with New Gen Angel's founding partner, Sean Obedi, about the Africa Business Angel Forum and the state of angel investing in Africa. People are kind of moving from diaspora, going back to, to Africa to start company. We can see that by the likes of Iroko, by the likes of many, many other companies that have been started by people actually returned from the diaspora. And what tends to happen is when you kind of come back, let's say you come back to London or come back to Paris or whatever you were leaving, and you're trying to raise money for a company that you're running in Africa, most investors basically don't want to touch those kind of businesses, especially early stage early stage investors, i.e. angels. As we do on every episode, we close the show with a great song. Hi everyone, welcome to the iAfrican Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Balungile. Every week, this show brings you the story behind the story from technology, business and public uh, sector professionals across the African continent. I'm so glad that you've joined me. You can find all the show notes and details over at weekly.iafrican.com. That's iAfrican with a K. You can also follow us on Twitter. The handle is at iAfricanWeekly. This is the Emerging Market News Update with Ajay Rajani brought to you by Emerging. For weekly updates, go to www.emerging.news and subscribe to the newsletter about the latest tech and innovation news coming out of growing economies like Africa. Hi, Ajay. Hey, B, How's it going? Good. Good to have you back. Yeah, good to, it's good to be back. I know we had a, a little bit of a break there, but uh, coming back rested and, and, uh, and ready to go. Great. That's the way to do it. So let's get into the latest issues. Uh, MTN, strangely enough, is looking at exploring a new and surprising part of the African business market. What's going on over there? Yeah, so uh, I think before we get directly into MTN, uh, their new CEO and potentially what, what's in store, I think the good background here is uh, is just how mobile money is performing and is projected to grow uh, in, across the continent in general. And so BCG, uh, a really large consulting group, put out a study that projected that by 2019, a uh, quarter billion Africans uh, without access to traditional banking services will have both mobile phones and a monthly income of at least uh, $500. Um, and, and, and the basic uh, conclusion is that they're, they're likely to use mobile money uh, instead of uh, conventional banking services. So whether it's Kenya and M-Pesa, Ambir in, in, in Ethiopia, EcoCash elsewhere, um, you know, the, the continent has really seen a pretty quick uptick in, in mobile money penetration. I think it's at 12% now across the continent. And you compare that to 25% bank account penetration, kind of on the high end of projections. And it's pretty remarkable when you think just how old bank banking is and how old bank accounts are versus how young concept mobile money is. Uh, and that 12% of mobile money penetration in Africa compares really extraordinarily favorably with the rest of the world, uh, which is just at 2%. And so I think that's good kind of background for for what seems to be next for MTN. Uh, they brought in a new CEO who uh, comes from Vodafone. Uh, he, he ran Vodafone's Europe cluster, uh, Rob Shutter. But actually, his primary background has been in banking uh, in South Africa. And so it seems to suggest that MTN's like really kind of taking, looking to take advantage of this of this uh, 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 mobile money growth uh, by transitioning from being a conventional and huge telco operator to something more like a modern bank. 
uh, really focused on financial exclusion, sorry, financial inclusion, um, and the multi-billion dollar opportunity that, that mobile money uh, presents in Africa. And I think MTN's got a lot of advantages and tools at its disposal um, to really take advantage of it. The first thing, like we said, it's huge, right? It's, it's the country's, large, I mean, the continent's largest telco, 168 million subscribers on the continent. Uh, I think across like 15 different uh, markets and countries. And so very few African companies have MTN scale of customer relationships. That's first. The second thing is that their business in general, like voice and basic voice and basic data have been essentially commoditized. Uh, and growth is really slowing, right? Because a lot of people in Africa, whether it's through a feature or a smartphone, already connect to some, you know, connect to voice and basic SMS. And, and as smartphones penetrate, data is really becoming commoditized in a highly competitive market. So whereas in advanced economies, you might see telcos kind of like iterate and evolve just uh, on high media consumption and like social media. I think in a lot of the African countries, you're seeing them need to do more creative things to innovate around their existing user base through things like financial services. I think the third thing that, mobile, that uh, MTN's really got going for it is already has a functioning mobile money product, right? So while Kenya, uh, well, Safaricom in Kenya, you know, wins all the international kind of like recognition, MTN's actually got 34.7 million mobile money subscribers as of last year. And I, that, I think that's almost 2x where M-Pesa was at the same time last year. And for example, just MTN Uganda, I think mobile money is their fastest growing sector. It's it's three and a half million subscribers that generate 17% of, of, uh, of MTN Uganda's revenue. So I think those are all the really great things that MTN's got going for it and in, 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 should it consider to, to, to really pursue mobile money kind of across the continent. There is a need though to crack big markets, right? So I'm sure that the new CEO, uh, Shredder, is gonna wanna focus on Nigeria, huge market, uh, potentially going back to South Africa as well to see if they can if they can make work what M-Pesa uh, found that it couldn't. And, and they did an extensive global search to find the right banking talent uh, to really join the existing infrastructure and experience and track record in mobile and telco operation. Seems like they found the right guy, but I think you know, MTN is a really huge company, which has a lot of pros, but the cons are that there are a lot of stakeholders, a lot of existing product lines. I think the key point is going to be whether they can like be sufficiently nimble to innovate on something as fluid uh, and like really localized mobile money, especially when you're dealing with 15 different markets. Choosing the right markets to go into first based on, you know, internet penetration, smartphone penetration, financial, I mean, literacy in general, also looking at the, the banking lobbies and how strong a role the government's going to have to play in one of these networks. Uh, I think that's really where a lot of the uh, decision making has to, has to, has to be done uh, right out the gate. I mean, what's your take on the step that MTN's taking? I mean, you already mentioned that they have a lot counting for them, but like you mentioned, there's there's a lot of uh, the status quo is already set. You know, in terms of uh, traditional banking, how difficult will it be for them to navigate and get that buy-in from governments and countries and consumers around the continent? What's your take? Yeah, I think like I mean, this is an obvious thing. They had to do. They had to try to do this. Uh, I think. In I think MTN, because it's so big and so entrenched, I think they're actually going to be uh, have an advantage in markets where there is a strong government influence and a strong banking lobby because they can kind of like come to the negotiating table with more of a track record and more leverage than a pure kind of like startup. Um, and so I actually think they'll, they'll be better off uh, than the smaller telcos or like the really, you know, upstarts. Um, when they're looking at huge markets with strong banking lobbies and, and a big governmental influence. Um, that said, you know, they have to figure out what works for the customer, right? So they're gonna have to be really uh, startup-y in, 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 in testing new ideas, experimenting, listening to customers, looking at data, uh, and taking a responsible approach. I think like there's a lot that can be learned about how where Vodacom went wrong with M-Pesa uh, in South Africa. And I think they don't want to repeat those mistakes by making too many assumptions um, and partnering with their friends versus, you know, partnering with the uh, with the, the networks and the agents that, that really make sense for the customer base that they're looking to target. Oh, sounds cool. Sounds cool. Well, um, I'm sure you guys will keep an eye on that and update us uh, with anything new. Let's talk about the portmanteau that's been on everybody's lips <laughs> for the past few weeks, the Brexit. This vote has just caused a mess, hey? Politically, economically. Yeah, I think... Uh, it's definitely being kind of like felt around the world and in particular the, the, the vote to leave the EU caused currency stocks and bonds to all dramatically decline across Africa. Um, I think three markets and we'll pay attention to two in particular, uh, South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, but it's like South Africa, for example, you know, it's a country already reeling from slumping commodity prices. 
saw it's already volatile currency. The rand plummet, I think like 8% against US dollar, which is the biggest fall for like a really pretty volatile currency um, since 2008, you know, the crisis of 2008. Uh, and it could have like kind of real beyond like that, the currency arbitrage and currency drop, like real economic implications for South Africa as well. I think the UK is the fourth biggest destination for South African exports. Um, and so it could have a real effect on GDP growth. I think the South African economy already contracted more than a percent in Q1. And, and this could have a very, you know, not negligible effect uh, on, on GDP and, and growth going forward. I think the, the second thing is that, you know, given the need to renegotiate agreements like trade agreements, investment agreements, etc., that were based on an EU like uh, regime, you know, flag even flagship economies like Nigeria and Kenya that have been doing relatively well. Kenya in particular, you know, they're expecting substantial losses in investment from and trade with the UK at a pretty delicate time. So like for, for Nigeria, it's pretty bad timing. The government's already trying to fix an economy's on the brink of uh, some somewhat of a recession by, you know, removing strict currency controls, liberalizing oil prices, um, investing more in technology and innovation. But, you know, it's worth mentioning the UK is Nigeria's largest source of foreign investment. And it's also a huge trade partner, I think. Basically, like the trade is at about $8.3 billion annually right now. It's projected to reach more than $25 billion by 2020. All of this is going to be really disrupted from the simple reality that you need to rewrite all these agreements between the UK and Nigeria and, and the companies within them as well, because they're based off of the UK being part of the EU regime. And if it's not going to be, then all this stuff needs to be renegotiated, redrafted and re-signed. That's something that, that uh, it's hard to quantify exactly what that impact's going to be, but in the short term, it's for sure going to have a negative effect on all of the economic indicators. Uh, and in the long term, you have to see how well these things get sorted out. You, you can't say that it's just going to be a short term bump. It, it could have, a, have a, a longer term consequence as well. Now with the dust settling, there, there seems to be like some level of buyer's remorse. So, you know, I mean, in economies like, uh, you know, amongst African countries, should be, is this going to go ahead? Like, should we really be holding our breath? So I'm totally unqualified to speak on this. I just think, you know, a referendum is a recommendation to parliament. It's ultimately up to parliament to, I think it's Article 50, right? To invoke Article 50 and really initiate that, that formal withdrawal from the formal withdrawal from the EU. And I think you're going to have to see someone. There has to be a there has to be a prime minister that's willing to step up and say, hey, I'm willing to be the PM through this process. And I don't think you've seen that yet. Uh, and I think you're seeing a lot of like uh, popular sentiment potentially change uh, or, or come back along the way. So I, I, I tend to think there's room to, to say that it maybe it doesn't go through, but you know, I'm definitely not qualified to speak on it. And, uh, and I'm not sure who is. We're just gonna have to have to see. Interesting. I really want to chat to somebody on the show about this, but thank you so, so much, Ajay. It's so great to have you back. Yeah, it's great, it's great to be back, B. So I've just uh, linked up with Mr. Tommy Davis, who's joining us all the way from the UK. Mr. Davis, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. First of all, I love the description on your website where you describe yourself as a future trickpreneur in love with all things tech in Africa. And then you go, and then it says, especially mobile in Nigeria. Can you... <laughs> And, you know, I got so excited because your statement was so general and then it gets very specific very quickly. Can you tell me, can you tell me about this love for tech and for Africa uh, and how, how you've reached this point where this has become your passion point, but also something that you put your time and your money in as an investor? Well, let, let me start with the name because um, there's, there's always this misconstrued thought that it's uh, Tommy, which is like Thomas from the English language. Tommy, which is T-O-M-I, is actually an abbreviation of Ola Ulua Tomi, which is a Yoruba name uh, that stands for the wealth of God is enough for me. So that is the name. Tomi means enough for me. The reason I bring that up ties into the mission statement you read out earlier, which is my passion for the continent and for technology. My background is in technology. I studied systems analysis out of uh, Miami and my first job was as, as an SE with uh, IBM. So right from what we used to call big iron technology 
up to today, when we're starting to look at holograms and holographic technology, we're starting to look at things, all kinds of devices from wearables through to drones. Um, so all manners of technology, not the least of which is the connecting technology of all, which is the internet based on the uh, IP internet uh, protocol. Africa is my home continent. Um, even though I was born in Africa, but I was raised in Africa, I was specifically Lagos, and my heritage is out of Lagos, hence the Nigeria uh, factor. But having said that, I do operate not just in Nigeria, but also I'm quite active in Cape Town in South Africa. I'm also active in Accra and um, also in Nairobi. So I like to think of myself as a continental, just like uh, my late father, who happened to be a lawyer, not just to Joe Kenyatta, but also to the late Nelson Mandela. Mobile is something that has arisen and given Africa impetus. So we missed the landline uh, telephony, but um, we are, I believe, still one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing areas on the planet when it comes to the use of mobile telephony. And when you look at some of the things mobile has done for us uh, from M-Pesa in Kenya all the way through to voice calls uh, uh, straight across the continent, um, you start to see where my fascination with uh, mobile technology is coming from. But having said that, it's also not just about the technology, but also mobility and the fact that the miniaturization that it brings enables us to do quite a lot given our lack of um, power infrastructure. So the battery <laughs> within mobile technology gives us that, that capacity. It's a long-winded answer to your question, but I hope it sort of gives you the context in which I operate. It does, it does. So I just wanted to go back to, so so you've described, I would say, your passage throughout the world. You, you have a lot of experiences. You've described, you know, uh, born in Nigeria, but you've also worked in the UK, in the US. Um, and right now you're based in London. And you, you do have this very, very close relationship with Africa and its growth, how does this international you know, uh, perspective, how does the international experience shape what you know of the, the, the continent and also shape how perhaps business uh, or how you would approach business in terms of the African landscape? Well, I alluded to this uh, in a couple of my books. Uh, so if you look at the book I co-wrote with uh, Brian Tracy and a few others, um, Africa, the next frontier is the chapter that uh, I pen. It starts to talk about my view of the fact that um, the rest of the world, having done what they are doing, are now looking to Africa to say we need to catch up with them. But um, when you then look at the second book, which is called The African Project Manager, you start to understand that the cultural overtones, we are very, very rich in culture. And um, our geography benefits us in, in terms of both agrarian um, for food and luminosity for power. You start to understand that uh, these are dynamics that the rest of the world is just starting to understand that we have in addition to the rich human resource capabilities uh, that we have. So I find these an exciting combination that is going to shape the future of the world as we move ahead. Mm -mm. Actually, I've come across your book, um, the one that you're referring to, The African Project Manager, before on Amazon. And uh, just for the listeners, it covers topics like, uh, you know, communication, with the team, with the management, with the stakeholders in your business, right? It talks about budgeting, project scope, time. Let's all put our business hats on. <laughs> and and <laughs> no, I, I've actually looked at it quite closely because um, I was like, uh, this title, you, you, the title is really for somebody who's for somebody like me who's really passionate about Africa. The title really just stands out, and it's kind of like you know the business bible in my opinion. But I'm I'm curious about um, what inspired you to write this book, the African you know, project manager, that it, it, it is kind of like the business Bible for navigating business. But what inspired you to write the, the book? 
Well, the, the thing is, I, I had um, been for Europe. I headed uh, the e-commerce uh, capability for Ernst & Young before crossing over to work with the Nigerian government uh, on quite a number of projects. Then I worked in Kenya on a number of projects. Then I also worked in Ghana and in South Africa. And over a 10-year period, I've found, um, uh, by the way, I'm a certified project management professional, and I also teach the Prince 2 methodology here uh, in the UK. And I'd found that while these standards were very, very good at delivering, especially technology projects, you had to modify them for you to be able to achieve success within the African context. And the fundamentals being that um, the societies are different. They're not, it's not that Africa is a bad society, which is how a lot of people would paint it. It's just, it's different. So time, let's take one example, you know, time and time management. In, in uh, the Western world, due to the weather situation, time is a critical element of society because they understand that if you don't do stuff in the spring and summer, when it comes to the autumn and the winter, you're going to be challenged. Why? Because they lose light, it gets colder, um, and therefore things become more difficult. On the other hand, we do not have that challenge on the continent. We have a totally different perspective on time. Our, our, our perspective and our emphasis is more on relationships. So it doesn't mean one is right, the other is wrong. It just means that they're approaching things from a totally different perspective. So you will find um, in the Western world, I'm allowed to call somebody who's 50 years my old, my senior by his first name, whereas the way we measure time in Africa is based on the experience. So there's a deference to the elders. Um, these are fundamental differences um, in the psyche of the people, in the culture of the people. And what I try to do in the book is to expose these differentials within the context of achieving, you know, your objectives of delivering a project. The same goes for money. The same goes for communication. It goes for all aspects of project management. And it's just recognizing that the African continent has a different cultural persona from the West. And that's it. Just just following on to that uh, question about, you know, uh, your book, you also co-authored um, another one, Cracking the Success Code and Corporate Bold. That's just what I've come across. But and I just wanted to touch on this point about when I, I love reading. I'm a reader. And, and I know that when I pick up a book, there's something that I'll learn from that book. But I'm also curious about what you have learned about the writing process as the author. Uh, writing is a discipline. It takes a lot of dedication. It takes a lot of focus for you to pen a book. And if you notice, I grew up through those books. So um, the first two um, were if effectively essays or that became chapters um, before I finally decided to actually author a proper book, you know, book in its own right. And uh, the book I'm currently writing is actually sharing my thinking on startups, which is called the Poem Framework. The, the final title hasn't been decided. We're still working with the editors um, on that. But, you know, writing is a discipline that takes dedication and passion. The challenge is knowing that you do have a story to tell or you do have some knowledge to share and you have in your mind's eye those who you think you want to benefit from this sharing. At least that's how I approach it. The reason I'm asking this is because there's so much to you. <laughs> um, and you seem to wear so many different hats. And I really want the listeners to get a sense of your diverse talents. I mean, you're an entrepreneur, a speaker, mentor, a writer, which, which I just touched on now, and also an investor. Where, where do you get all the time? <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, what I was told, which I believe, unless you found a different way, is we all get 24 hours in the day and we tend to follow our passions. And um, my challenge has always been that I'm pluralistic in, in passion. So I tend, I tend to juggle quite a number of balls at any given point in time because um, that's what I enjoy doing. Besides, like my wife says, it keeps me out of trouble. 
<laughs> I don't know if we should be worried about that. But let's talk about what you've been up to lately. Okay, so I mentioned that you're an investor. It, uh, tell me a little bit about um, your role as an investor, um, as an angel investor, and your involvement in you know tech businesses from that perspective. What I'm quite excited about is something we started earlier this year, which is called, um, by the way, I'm the founder of the Lagos Angel Network. Um, which is an angel investing network um, out of Lagos, Nigeria, um, that currently has something like about 40 or 50 angel investors uh, in it. And um, yeah, well, what, what, what I find quite exciting about it is um, earlier this year, we set up something called the Land Deal Day, which is once a quarter, we all get together and um, we don't just listen to pitches. Everybody pre-commits a certain amount uh, to say, you know, uh, we believe that if we if we manage to get at least 100 applicants, there must be at least one or two that are invest investment ready and, you know, um, investment deserving. So we set aside the money and um, we invest and uh, we set out. The first one and says, okay, you know what we should target to have because there were about 20, 20 of us um, at the beginning of the year. And we says, you know, 20 of us, okay, if everybody does oh, give or take a couple of grand, a couple of thousand dollars each, we should be able to raise $50,000. And that would be a good investment in one or two startups. Um, well, guess what? <laughs> We were going to keep it very quiet. I didn't want any publicity. We were just going to do it on what I call the P's and Q's. But we ended up with um, 25 angels investing $250,000. Yeah, yeah, the second one happens uh, day after tomorrow, next Thursday. And it's, uh, it's looking quite good. So, yeah, I, I'm quite excited about that because... Um, I'm what we call a portfolio investor. So I have a portfolio of tech uh, entrepreneurs that I, you know, I support as um, an angel investor, um, which, you know, uh, people tend to misunderstand angel investing. And, and that's the challenge we're trying to address and um, uh, on a different level. So I'm also the president of the Africa Business Angel Network where we're looking at policy, we're looking at developing angel angels in terms of educating them, and um, we're also looking at them building networks. But the key thing is, um, because people hear investor, they don't hear the angel part, they tend to think of it like uh, venture capital funding or any of the other funds that just bring cash. Um, what makes angel investing different um, is the fact that it, it, it's easier to think of it as an insurance policy for a startup because angels tend to bring not just the cash, that's the cheapest thing an angel brings to a startup. Uh, the second, uh, which is more expensive, is access to the business networks. So reputational risk, the fact that an angel will pick up the phone and make calls on your behalf to his or her network is to me even more valuable um, than the cash that they bring. And the third and the final is the fact that they're mentors and advisors that share their personal experience and life journey in terms of business with the entrepreneurs that they're backing. And that is infinitely more valuable than cash. So when you combine the three, you understand why I say angel investing is more like an insurance policy than it is um, cash capital. Right. I'm so I'm I'm actually so grateful that you 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 explained that you know fundamental difference. And often, I mean, that's that's exactly what we need in Africa. We don't just need cash flowing down the pipeline. We need we need resources. We need talent. We need mentorship. We need guidance. And and I'm I'm really glad that you touched on that. Which brings me to this question: How did you make the decision that okay, the next step for me is angel investing. That's the first question. And when you are looking to become an angel investor to a business or a specific entrepreneur, what are the, what are the 
criteria okay let's not talk about the entire criteria but what is it that you know that's on the mark and that just makes you go that's what i'm getting behind that's what i'm backing that that's the idea that i'm interested in well i didn't decide to become an angel investor it just happened um about 15 years <laughs> about 15 years ago i got a call from a friend saying oh um i'm interested in starting this business and funnily enough it was in cape town south africa he'd been my friend from england and he'd gone back because mandela was back uh, was uh, out of jail and i'd gone to nigeria because uh, we'd finally got democracy the military had left so he gave me this call saying look um you know i'm thinking of starting this thing and um this is the direction we want to go and um i need your help so i says what help do you need he says well we need a little bit of cash but more importantly, um, we want to start across Africa immediately. So we're going to need you to hold West Africa and uh, develop the business in that vein. So I says, OK, fine. Sounds good. As long as it's not full time, I'm more than happy to help. And that was my first foray. Fast forward uh, 15 years later, that company is now in 36 countries. And it's the first African property that's been taken on by um and uh, the Disney Disney conglomerate and that and a few others like that. The second one happened in a similar vein where um, a big fund, the uh, a big Western fund who I was friends with, had gave me a call saying, look, um, we don't invest in startups, but we think this young man has a brilliant idea. If you could mentor him and develop him and build a business around him three, four years from now, maybe we can buy the business off of you. So I said, okay, send him to me. And um, again, this is a business that is now in six countries, um, including Asia and Africa, and um, is doing quite well. So between those two and a number of other opportunities, when uh, things started happening around investment, I decided to take a course by which was being given by the World Bank on investment and it was there that I learned that there was this thing called angel investing and they says oh you can start your own network and I'm saying why would I want to do that and then they explained the benefits of aggregate investing and aggregate mentoring which is what angel networks are all about and that's really what led to you know the starting of the Lagos Angel Network. Now with, uh, with reference to what do you back and what don't you back? The first thing I'm going to say is um, I don't it's not about the idea. It's about the person behind the idea, because ideas come a dime a dozen. It's the ability to execute that makes an idea worth anything. You know, there's so many ideas that have died with their owners because they had the inability to execute. And when I talk about execute, everyone says, but I don't have the money. Well, even if you had all the money in the world, okay, you may find that you still cannot execute on an idea. And that that's the thing is, it's a question of passion, okay, and vision. So it's that's what I'm typically looking for is, does this person have the vision? So they're not just looking at today's world, they're looking at tomorrow's world. And do they have the passion to drive others towards that future? A combination of both is rare to find in addition to the technical capabilities. So technical capabilities, we can always build around people. But those first two, fundamental. And that's that's what angel investors, in fact, tend to look for in terms of backing. And that's why we talk about, you know, two things. It's one thing for you to be investment worthy. So that's worthy of investment. And it's another thing to be investment ready that is able to take, you know, the the resources that are given you and do something useful with it. Wow, yeah, that this is powerful. Really, really powerful. I <laughs> it's very rare that I I'm I'm caught off guard by the excellence, but I really am. So let's go to okay, let's talk about projects, businesses that are coming out of Africa currently. What have you seen that has been investment worthy? And you can talk about some of the um, ideas, passion, um, businesses that you have backed. But um, I mean, can you talk a little bit about what you've seen that's really, really you found very interesting or um, innovative or worthy of investment? I tend not to talk about 
um, my brands or the brands in my portfolio unless I'm specifically requested to. I have the foundation of my portfolio is what I call the three S's. Okay. Uh, the first is um, called Striker. Um, it's uh, it's pre premium product is something called Super Strikers, which is a set of characters that we started in a paper comic. And that paper comic um, currently distributes a million, over a million copies a month in 36 countries. It is also an animated series and the first animation um, to actually be taken out of Africa by the Disney Channel. And it is now broadcast in over 18 countries. Um, so that's sort of the first of the S's. The second I talked about earlier is called Sproxil, which does what we call electronic pharmacovigilance. As you may be aware, in uh, emerging markets, we have a challenge uh, with fake drugs, where people, there's a lot of um, drugs that are produced that are fake to the market. And unfortunately, the government and government agencies don't have all the resources to track the counterfeiters. So uh, Dr. Shifi Gogo, um, a young Ghanaian um, PhD student um, out of the United States, came up with a brilliant idea of using the same method we use to recharge our phones, which is scratch cards and um, long digit numbers to apply those to drugs so that when you buy a drug, you can actually send a free SMS and receive a response as to whether the drug is genuine or fake from the manufacturers. So again, you start to get a sense of the innovation. Um, by the way, Striker, the, the, the Super Strikers characters are a fantasy league football comic. So it's about soccer. Yeah, I, I grew up reading Super Strikers. <laughs> well, I or, I or I can thank you for that. I grew up uh, reading Super Strikers every single Sunday because it came, it came with one of the publications. Well, you can blame me for that. So the innovation in Super Strikers was the fact that um, it was the first in-story advertising so we could give it away free. So the innovation in Sproxil was the use of, um, you know, SMS for detecting, you know, fake drugs. And um, Slim Trader, which is the third one, um, actually innovated, are again, around the use of uh, mobile telephony to search, to store, to search, to select, and then to pay for of any particular product you wanted. In its first iteration, it helped farmers who were looking for fertilizer and did not have access. So they could send an SMS um, and it would tell them where f uh, fertilizers was available in local language. The second iteration uh, of Slim Trader uh, was using it uh, for airline seats. So you could search for an airline seat, select it, and you could buy a ticket or from your mobile phone. And in its current iteration, it is an, a full-fledged online travel agent where you can not only book the airline, you can also book a hotel. So it acts as a platform for hotel owners to actually manage their inventory. So those are the three S's um, and you sort of start to get an idea and all three are from the continent, but all three have gone, have reached beyond the continent. So those are the kind of plays that I tend to look for. And, you know, they're not unique. They're quite a number, an increasing number of these opportunities where you're seeing the use of mobile technology or the use of creative technology from the continent that is diffused into other uh, areas of the globe. Great. Thank you so much for sharing about those three, um, you know, like you say, they started out of this continent and they've um, gone out to the world. Can you talk a little bit about that experience of going global um, and <laughs> what um, possibly other um, businesses that come out of Africa that are looking to go for, um, global? Okay, you can't say what to expect, but what that experience is like. Because, you know, when you start a company, you do think about, well, I think you should think about scalability, right? So can you talk about your own experience 
in terms of that? Well, I think the philosophy uh, is is where you start from, you know, which is you need to think big, then you need to start small, and then you scale fast as a as a strategy. And um, in if if you think big, that means you'll be solving a problem that is universal in nature but localized okay also so if you do that then scaling sort of i i i won't want to say falls in your lap but you know you start to see the path to scale um because it presents itself as as you continue to solve the problems um that you have decided uh, you want to go up against let me take the classic uh, example of um, Sproxil. I'll leave Stryker for a minute and come to Sproxil. Um, you know, the, when we started with, oh, we're going to do pharma, you know, do the text and um, so on and so forth. Yeah, the first thing that immediately screamed scale was the fact that we had to hook up with the network operators. And we had to go into the cloud. There are no cloud hosting facilities that we wanted, you know, that we could rely on at that point in time. So we had to go to Amazon. So immediately, day one, you're global because the back end is sitting in Amazon. The uh, intermediate end is sitting in networks like MTN, who are multi-country, um, for you to reach a local guy who's buying drugs locally. The second were the drug manufacturers themselves are not local only. So scale was thrust upon us from day one. And as we solved the problem within the Nigerian context, the pilot had been done in Ghana. It was, you know, the drug manufacturers that were saying, well, you know, that's all well and good. The Nigerians have uh, access to this facility, but this is not the only country where we have the challenge. Have you looked at this country or looked at that country or how about this one? And um, as we started to look at those and it became a question of how do we raise the funding to address the different markets. So that's sort of how the Sproxil scaling came came across. And I know that we're running out of time, so I just wanted to maybe give you the opportunity. I, I wanted to talk more about your CV, but we haven't had the time. But just any um, last remarks, any, you know, um, any la final thoughts that you would want to share with listeners, um, just to keep it open so that you can um, express yourself however you feel. Any final words? What I'd like to share is something that I'm writing up now, and it's it's called a it's called poem. And what I say is for every business vision. So the first thing it presumes is that you have a vision for your business. What you need to do, and what you do over time, is you write a poem. What do I mean by poem? I don't mean poems like um, Royal Kipling's If or uh, Maxims like Desiderata, which are very laudable and fantastic. But I'm talking of the fact it's an acronym. And the acronym simply states that, first of all, you, you know, if you have a vision, the first thing you want to do is what is your proposition? What is the nature of your offer to the market? And who are the customers this proposition is for? And what is the competitive environment, the regulatory environment in which this offer is placed? So you are making a proposition or a promise to the market is what the P stands for. Once that is fully understood and well articulated, then you need to address the O, which is the organization that will deliver on your promise. So what kind of people, whether it's at a board level, management level or a staff level, are we talking about? And what is the nature of, how will they be organized from a processes standpoint? What are the processes they will use to create and deliver the value that you have promised in your proposition? And what technology underpins this or what kind of technical excellence underpins it? Those are the two critical elements that will bring your vision to life. And as it does, then the other two in the poem are the measures by which success is assessed. What do I mean? The first is E, which is economics. So some people say, oh, that means show me the money. Yes. You know, why? What is the economic viability of your proposition in terms of revenue streams? And what is the cost of your organization to ensure that it is a sustainable model and it is a profitable one over that period. So we know what your proposition is. We understand the, e the, the organization. We know the economics of it. And finally, 
we talk about the milestones, which is the story in time. So where did you start? Where are you today? And where are you going? So what are the milestones along the way that get you there? So you see that time and money, time from your milestones, money from your economics are the measures of the organization that you have used to deliver your proposition. And that is the poem framework in a nutshell, which is how visions are brought to life in business. And, and, this, is, and this is the premise of your, your um, upcoming book? Correct. Perfect. I can't wait. Good luck with that writing process. And I look forward to reading a copy of that book. Well, you will find synopses of it on SlideShare and scattered in different places on the internet. Uh, I just want to give listeners the opportunity to follow you on Twitter because we just got a, a, a great short lesson that is completely invaluable. So if the listeners would like to uh, uh, follow Mr. Davis, it's Tommy D, um, at Tommy D, T-O-M-I-D-E-E -E on Twitter. And of course, we'll add links and contacts and everything. And I know I referred to your LinkedIn, so I really want to put it out there so that people can learn more about you and your career path and what's got you to this place. But I'm so, so grateful for you spending time with us today. Thank you very much. I hope people find this useful. You take care. Oh, I, 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 don't, I don't doubt it. Thank you so much, Mr. Davis. The iAfrican Weekly is brought to you in association with Remix Mini, the world's first true Android PC. Head over to bit.ly forward slash Remix Essay and learn about this innovative Android PC that allows you to work and play with the entire Android app ecosystem while taking full advantage of intuitive PC features such as a taskbar, multiple window multitasking, mouse and keyboard support and so much more. Just go to bit.ly forward slash Remix Essay to get yourself the world's first true Android PC. Next, we chat about an interesting story from the African continent to get the story behind the story. So I'm chatting to Sean Obedi, who's the founder of New Gen Angels. Um, Sean is going to talk to us about angel investing and the state of angel investing in the context of Africa. Hi, Sean. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. So let's let's first deal with New Gen Angels. Um, it's a global network, from what I've heard, but it strictly focuses on um, investing in businesses in Africa. So can yes. you tell me a little bit about the the motivation behind you know uh, establishing New Gen Angels and what kind of business? what the motivation was behind starting New Gen Angel and what kind of business you're, you at this um, organization are trying, to, are trying to support. Right. So as you perfectly said, um, New Gen Angels is basically an engineer work of um, people and, and companies that are looking to invest in early stage companies in Africa that are for Africa focused. You don't have to be based in Africa, but you have to be Africa focused. So maybe in the UK or US or Australia or whatever, and you want to move and focus on African opportunities. And that's where we kind of um, we came from. And the whole notion of behind that is, if you think about the, the big shift that is going on, that has kind of has been going on for a while, but the people, people are kind of moving from diaspora, going back to, into Africa to start companies. Um, we can see that by the likes of Iroko, by the likes of, you know, many, many other companies that have been started by the people that actually returned from the diaspora. And what tends to happen is when you kind of come back, let's say you come back to London, you come back to Paris or wherever you were living, and you're trying to raise money for a company that you're running in Africa, most investors basically don't want to touch those kind of businesses, especially early stage company, early stage investors i.e angels so um for me I, I was involved in that circle for you know since 2011 and i basically noticed that i was getting companies approaching me for helping with you know helping get them funded um and i noticed quite clearly that there was a big gap in terms of the infrastructure required to fund these companies. Um, let me just break that down. If you look at the way things work in a kind of developed market, you have family and friends 
um, angel investors, you have VC firms that are kind of specifically dealing with various series of funding. So the companies are focused on series A, series B, series C, and so on and so forth. And then you have the bigger ones who are kind of coming in at larger tickets. Um, and as a company grows, you have to basically move from one phase to the next. Now, if you're an African company there's, and <laughs> there is no family money at your disposal, you're actually not going to get it done. So angel investing as a sport in Africa is still very, very early because um, people are still investing in government bonds and cars and houses and, and land, mm-hmm. which is great. But there is a need for funding companies and, and that structure is what we're kind of really trying to help and kickstart kick a movement. Some, some people might still be unconvinced by the notion of angel investing. What do you say to that um, reluctance or hesitation? Um, I think it's quite that's quite reasonable because once again, if you look at if you look at the history of 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 angel investing in Africa, it's still a novelty in terms of I, what I'm saying is technology angel investing. People have invested in other sectors before, but the tech, kind of the notion of investing in early stage companies as an angel investor professionally, that's still kind of Really, it's 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 you know, in the last five ten years that things kind of started moving, and those early movers that started investing in companies, whether in South Africa, whether it's Nigeria, whether it's even up in in, in Egypt, um, those are now reaping the rewards of those early kind of investments. So some people are not starting to notice that some things are happening, um, but I th- I don't think that the fact that people don't know about it is is a big issue. For for me, I think it's a big opportunity to basically explain and educate people on what's going on, the returns that people can get from investing in early-stage companies, but also the impact that they can have in their local communities. Mm-mm. I mean, even though angel investing is still quite, it's still at an early stage. Yes. <laughs> That's funny. In Africa, because yeah. you know you invest in early-stage companies. Anyway, um, even though it, it itself is in an early stage, there, there has been a, a, an established platform for angel investors to get together. I mean, earlier this year in March, the first ever Africa Business Angel Forum uh, took place. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what happened um, and, and what the outcome of that forum was? So, first of all, what went into the establishment? What was the uh, catalyst for the establishment of the forum? What happened at this inaugural event and what was the outcome? Um, so what happened? So the Africa Business Angel Forum um, is basically a flagship event for early stage investing in Africa. And we held that in London. Um, and the whole point was to basically, once again, mobilize funding into early stage companies. So if you look at most of the events that happen here in London, they are all about you know private equity and, and the wonderful large ticket stuff. But the language is just or above your, it kind of goes above your head. So I really wanted to have something that's tangible, something that of people that speak normal languages, and also really bring people together that I've been working with for the last two, three years that are really in this space and doing some real stuff. Um, in terms of the outcome, we had that great panel on corporate venture capital. Um, there's actually going to be a report coming out this summer um, with one large telcos that you know, looking at what telcos are doing across Africa and how corporate venture capital can be a good, great source of funding for most African startups. Um, then there is also um, the two funds that were pretty much previously unknown uh, and were announced announced on the day. And one was a $10 million fund for agricultural kind of farm companies based in France. And there's another one based in the US, um, which was a $50 million fund. So overall, basically, we, you know, once again, we achieved our goal of trying to mobilize funding for African opportunities. But also, mostly for me, the biggest impact was the connections that were made on the day. And we've already started to see some of the fruits from that day. So we're going to hold it again in September, second week of September, to really kind of wrap up what has happened so far since January up until September and actually what we can then also set set the tone for next year. Um, but yeah, so great, quite, quite encouraging outcome. Mm-hmm. I, I asked our main guest of this episode, Tommy Davis, and I want to ask you, um, 
you know, what kinds of business ideas are, so when an, when an angel investor is looking to invest, I mean, I know, you know, it's possible that you are presented with many, 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 many options because there's so many ideas out there. So what is it that an angel investor looks, looks to back, um, especially within a context like Africa? I mean, we have to remember that Africa is a big place. So what may work in Cairo does not work in Cape Town or does not work okay. in Nairobi or Kigali um, or Douala or whatever. But, but I think well, just generally when you look at the kind of companies that are applying or the kind of space that really focus on personally, we, we, we tend to see or kind of our investors want to see things that are much more um, – I mean, things that have kind of gained traction. So I'll give you an example. Let's say if you have a company and you already kind of managed to build a prototype, you have a few customers and you're actually starting to scale beyond your borders, that's still an early stage investment to someone. So you may be looking for 250000 but that's very small ticket to someone. So if you can basically go ahead, build some sort of traction, build a following, build a brand, make the initial mistakes. If you can get the initial, uh, once again, the initial early stage um, investment or just bootstrap the whole thing yourself, that's great because that shows effort. Um, and then you can get angel investors who come in to help you accelerate that to the next phase, build a proper infrastructure around you, have a, some kind of, be able to recruit a board, proper board around you and be able to build a professional team around you to actually scale that product. So those are the things we actually tend to look for. Mm. I'm asking this question, especially because um, I'm curious about what makes angel investing in Africa unique or different from angel investing wherever else, you know? Um, so I'm curious about like what measures are taken to ensure that when capital comes in, when, when, when you back the business, that this business is good for Africa, that it's, it, it will make a difference. Do you have a, a, an opinion on that or am I like, am I making sense? Um, <laughs> You're perfectly making sense, but I think um, angel investing is the same everywhere because you're looking to back very early stage companies and you're looking mm -hmm. to basically help them to ride the wave of whatever trend they're actually trying to kind of innovate around. So um, when it comes to Africa, we just have to look at different business models that are unique to Africa, business, sorry, some of, some of the business cases they have to make for some um, local issues that we can't find anywhere else. Um, whether he's using drone to transport blood or whether he's using AI to do certain things, there's great opportunities in terms of how can we leverage the new technologies that are coming up to solve local problems. I mean, everybody keeps talking about M-Pesa and how it has kind of innovated um, the, the mobile money space. But I think there are much more bigger, better um, innovations to come out of Africa simply because we have unique challenges. And entrepreneurs are there to solve problems. And unique challenges are great because it gives you a different point of view. If I'm, you know, if you are in South Africa, or if you are in Kenya, if you're in, in whatever part of Africa you are in, you know, there are things you're going to come across that your, your counterparts in the U.S. won't have even think, to think about. So those are the opportunities to kind of innovate around and create companies around that. Instead of having to just see something being done in the U.S. and just copy it because you think it's a great way to to make money, um, mm -hmm. and I think that's one thing we need to encourage in our young people who are kind of creating to be brave enough to be brave enough to once again embrace some of the challenges we have back at home to build companies that are kind of uniquely solving those problems, because I've seen you know Western investors are looking for unique solutions that can be scalable beyond African borders. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there's there's quite a few of those, you know, from Egypt is quite one of, um, there's a company called Instabug from Egypt that I like so much. Um, check it out. It was recently actually funded by Excel. Um, mm -hmm. There are quite a few, as I'm sure you've seen, South African companies have also kind of been acquired by international, um, you know, international right. companies that's because we have unique challenges we are able to use technology in a different way and and 
Another company that I can also mention perhaps in this case is a company called Margins, backed by a great South African engine investor called Pule, who runs um, CRE Ventures. So there are great companies that are coming out of Africa just because people are now starting to kind of look within and solving problems that are there. Um, but yeah, sorry, Trump law. <laughs> No, 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 no. It's not a problem. And I, I, I just one last yeah. question. And I know that somebody would kill me if I didn't ask this. But how can people who would be interested in learning more about angel investing or even are considering becoming an angel themselves? How do they learn more about I know we're speaking to the to um, the diaspora right now, but how can listeners learn more about new gen angels or get in touch? with uh, with new gen angels um we have a website which is www.newgenangels.com um also tend to use social media a bit really once again just focus on the content so you can follow us on twitter we have a medium page as well where we publish some of the posts and and, and thoughts on angel investing um and i'm always happy to respond to anybody whether it's twitter or over email Thanks. Is there anything else that you wanted to add, Sean, that I maybe have not uh, uh, touched on? Well, people should be reading our some of the articles we've done with iAfrica. So. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. And, and people can follow Sean on, on Twitter. Um, you can follow him at, at S-O-B-E-D, that's O-B-E-D-I-H. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you very much, and keep up the good work. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much to Mr. Tommy Davis, who dropped some bars about how to do business. I, w I, I really wish that we had had more time to chat, but it was such an inspiring conversation, and I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to speak to him. Thanks as well to friend of iAfrican, Sean Obidi, for an enlightening conversation about angel investing. I really think that this conversation also enhanced my own understanding about the issue. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes next for New Gen Angels. So thanks, Sean. And as always, thanks so much to Ajay Rajani for sharing the latest emerging market news coming out of the African continent. I've missed Ajay for the past few weeks, so it's really, really good to have him back. And just an FYI, the iAfrican Weekly is broadcast every Thursday. The show's notes and details can be found at weekly.iafrican.com. So tune in next week, Thursday. And also in the meantime, feel free to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can just search for The iAfrican Weekly. Click subscribe and then leave us a review. You do kindly also follow me on Twitter, Balungile, at Balungile underscore M. And also you can follow the show at iAfrican Weekly. Until next week, cheers. Said I travel distant miles away from you if you do that again. I told you if you broke my heart, I'd turn around and try to fuck your friend. He said it was a one night stand, but now you're kind of clingy and it sucks. I think that we should both give up. Our time is done and we're just out of luck. Cause you're the worst thing that's ever happened in my life Cause you're the worst thing that's ever happened in my life I told you to come get your stuff I'm asking nicely please would you move out Your blankets have a funny smile I'll call a truck to come and get your couch You can have the groceries, the feta and the olives are still mine I swear I do not want you back I'd rather keep this cheap ass bottled wine Cause you're the worst thing that's ever happened in my life Cause you're the worst thing that's ever happened in my life
Never wise Thing that's ever happened in my life